Now, that might just be because the 25 to 34-year-olds amongst us, Megan, um, are um, you know young and feckless. Um, well, that's but, what the baby boomers keep trying to tell us. <laughs> it's what I hear daily from my parents. <laughs> um, but 35 to 44-year-olds' home ownership rates are also falling. Welcome to another Grattan Report podcast. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute, and today we're reimagining the Australian dream when it comes to housing affordability. Housing affordability, two words we've heard quite a bit of on this podcast. It would seem for some of you listening not all that long ago that housing costs in Australia were manageable, and people of all ages and incomes had a reasonable chance of owning their own home within a distance that still gave them access to good jobs and amenities. But as the housing affordability crisis marches on in Australia, it's becoming increasingly possible that the Australian dream of home ownership and a fair go might just become a fantasy, a story told of days long past. But it's not all doom and gloom. The possibility of change still holds out. Grattan's newest report, Housing Affordability, Reimagining the Australian Dream, examines the causes and effects of rising house prices, the political implications of change, and what solutions are needed to improve housing affordability. Joining us today to talk through the recommendations in this report is Grattan CEO John Daly and Australian Perspectives Fellow Brendan Coates. Welcome, John. Welcome, Brendan. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Megan. We've spoken at length about housing affordability on this podcast before, but just to get us started, uh, the report takes a look at what the major causes are of this inability to afford housing for many Australians. Can you step us through those reasons? So housing is like a lot of other markets. It is a little bit like bananas. Uh, And so if the price comes up, uh, that's usually because either demand's gone up or supply's gone down. So if we pull apart the housing market and ask, so why is it, um, why are prices going up? Why are people spending more of their money on housing? Both of those things apply. So a couple of things have happened uh, on the demand side. Some of them are, are good things. They are things that have happened to the economy in general. So we've seen a big fall in interest rates uh, and we've seen a substantial rise in incomes. And that means that people are prepared to pay a lot more for their housing than they used to be. Uh, and in a world in which, as we'll come to, supply is a bit restricted, um, they've essentially been prepared to spend at least the same percentage of their income as in the past, and sometimes a bit more. And so they've essentially bid up the price of housing. Uh, now that wouldn't if necessarily have uh, an enormous impact on rents, uh, particularly this fall in interest rates. Uh, when we see a fall in interest rates, we, accept to, we expect to see asset prices rise accordingly, and that's exactly what we've seen. But we don't expect to see people paying more in interest. And indeed, if we look at how much are people paying on their mortgage bill, if they take out a brand new mortgage, it's, it's as a percentage of their income, not particularly high relative to history. Um, so those are some of the economic things that have happened. They've got, you've got falling interest rates and you've got um, lower... Um, and you've got higher incomes. Um, But then we've also had a couple of other things that have shifted on the demand side. Um, We've had um, a a series of tax changes, particularly around um, capital gains tax, which coupled with the way that prices went up a lot faster than inflation meant that investing in housing was very attractive, particularly um, after tax. And so we've seen a, a large number of investors moving into the housing market and tending to be leveraged Uh, when they did that. And then finally on the demand side, we've seen a big jump in the population. Now, some of that jump is because um, 
the natural increase in the Australian population has been a little bit higher, partly because um, people are um, living a bit longer uh, and partly because uh, there was a cohort of women um, that had children a little bit later in their lives. Uh, and so that means that essentially over the last 10 years that effect's really cutting and we've had a little bit more in the way of natural increase than we had in the previous decade. But the big change is in uh, net overseas migration. So this is not just permanent migrants, this is both temporary migrants and permanent migrants. And what net overseas migration looks at is how many people are living in the country this year compared to last year, uh, and how much has that increased as a result of, of both permanent and temporary migrant movements. Uh, and that um, migration movement has gone from adding about uh, 100,000 people a year to the Australian population to about 200,000 people a wow. year. So it's a material jump up. It means that migration is now about two thirds of the increase in the Australian population year to year. Uh, and uh, that, that increase in population has not, of migrants in particular, has not been randomly distributed. Uh, through the height of the mining boom, a number of them went to um, Brisbane and Perth and to um, mining communities. But particularly over the last uh, couple of years, as the mining booms come off, most of those additional migrants have gone uh, to Melbourne and to Sydney. Mm. And so, of course, that's increased demand for housing. So that's the demand side. Yep. And now I might pass to Brendan to talk about the supply side. So we wouldn't actually expect that this would cause much in the way of a problem. So if you've got rising demand for housing, if we'd in fact built enough housing to meet that rising demand, and that is certainly the case in history. So back in the 1950s and 60s, Australia experienced quite rapid population growth in that sort of post-war European migrant boom. Um, and that actually led to a lot of additional home building. It was also a period where you actually got more demand for credit as well. And so credit became more readily available and that didn't lead in that instance, um, in obviously a very different financial system to much in the way of additional um, price rises. But what's happened this time around is whereas we've actually had a lot of demand for housing and particularly, as John said, an increase in um, migration from about 2005 onwards. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that uh, perhaps contrary to what some uh, politicians have been saying, it's not just a story where labour has increased the migration intake. This certainly occurred um, both in the last couple of years of the Howard era, um, when the mining boom really got going and then has fed on into the, um, into the Rudd-Gillard era and now the Abbott and now Turnbull era. And so... While demand was really strong, it actually took quite a long time for supply to respond. So supply didn't pick up in terms of the amount of new homes that we were building, didn't really pick up until about 2013, 2014. And what that's meant really is that if you think about the number of new homes being built per additional person, which is a measure of your sort of marginal demand for housing and marginal supply of housing, we went from a world through the 1990s where we were building something between sort of six to 700 new homes for every thousand new residents across New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, and essentially Australia-wide as well. Because once you account for those three cities, you kind of get into 50% of the population or 50% of the houses. So we went from a world of building at that rate to building in a world that was much less. So somewhere around three to 400 new homes per thousand people from essentially the mid 2000s through to until very recently. So now while supply has actually jumped quite a lot, we've gone from a world of building 150,000 new homes every year to something closer and actually exceeding 200,000 over the last couple of years. Because population growth has been so strong, we haven't actually built that many new homes per additional resident. 
And this has led to um, a number of studies concluding as the national, former National Housing Supply Council did, which was a Commonwealth government agency set up by the former Labor government, that Australia actually has quite a substantial shortfall of homes, somewhere in the range at that point of about 200, 250,000 new homes. Um, and on, on more recent estimates, somewhere in the range of 100 to 200,000 new homes. And so, unsurprisingly, when supply has been relatively constrained and demand has increased, then prices have risen. It's not the only reason prices have risen. So you would have seen an increase in prices just from that pure interest rate effect anyway. Mm. Um, you would have seen an increase in prices as incomes have increased because unsurprisingly, people like having larger houses um, as their incomes go up. And in some ways, some of the, the, the freestanding homes in the inner city areas become essentially status goods. It's something that, you know, they're really scarce, they're really attractive, they become really expensive. And so we've seen supply not keep up. And the real question is, well, why didn't supply keep up? Mm. Why didn't supply keep up with prices? Why was there a decade-long gap between when that demand increased and the supply increased? And we think that quite a lot of what's going on here is actually about land use planning rules. So land use planning rules have made it particularly hard to build in the inner and middle ring suburbs of our major cities. Mm -hmm. On this podcast, we've talked about that at length before. We have, yeah. Um, and as a result, we're building homes on the suburban fringe and in particularly in Melbourne, we've, that's been basically how the, the um, how Melbourne has accommodated that quite rapid population increases. It's built more on the fringe, and in Sydney, it's seen rapidly increasing prices. So in the decade between the mid two thousands and now, prices have gone up quite a lot. Um, supply didn't really keep pace until very recently. And what about the type of housing that's being built? So you mentioned, you know, we've we've got larger incomes, we want larger houses, but is that the way? we're really going? Is that what Australians are after? What Australians are after? Well, actually, interestingly enough, um, the, 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 the notion that most Australians want a suburban house on a quarter acre block mm. is actually not really borne out by the facts. Mm. It's not really true. Um, so research that Grattan Institute did back in 2011 after a report called Housing We Choose looked at what kind of houses would, what kind of homes would Australians want if they had to make the trade-offs between you know, everyone wants a five-bedroom house in Turak or in North Carlton in Melbourne or in Surrey Hills or on the North Shore in, um, in Sydney um, with five bedrooms and, and all the trimmings. But obviously, we can't all have that. So when you ask people, okay, well, if you, for given prices, would you prefer to have something like a two-bedroom apartment close to the city, a three-bedroom townhouse within 10 k's of the city or a four-bedroom house on the suburban fringe? Surprisingly enough, more, many more people would actually prefer those denser housing options than what the existing housing stock provides. So, you know, the preferred stock in, in Melbourne is, you know, only about half of people would prefer, given prevailing prices at the time, a detached house. In Sydney, it's just over 40%. Compare that to in 2016, in Melbourne, about just under 70% of homes were detached houses. And in Sydney, it was just under 60%. So there's a big gap between those two things. And there's lots suggest there's lots of unmet demand for those denser forms of housing that we haven't been building. Mm. What about the cost of housing itself? It, I mean, obviously, the cost of everything has grown over the years. I mean, you know, petrol cost me way more than it used to when I first started driving. Is it actually the cost of building houses that's, in, that's impacting on the cost of housing? So the short answer is no. Um, uh, if we look at what's happened to construction costs, particularly for residential housing over the last um, couple of decades, um, it's gone up by a little bit more than inflation. So um, 
Uh, and when you pull that apart, of course, builders' wages have gone up by more than inflation, as most people's wages have gone up by more than inflation. So not surprisingly, building costs have gone up by a little bit more than inflation, but not by very much. Uh, so if we look at, at this big increase we have seen in house prices, what's driven it? The answer is, look, a tiny, tiny bit is essentially builders' wages. Some of it is that we are living in bigger, nicer houses with, you know, better finishes than when we used to. Actually, not so much bigger houses, but certainly houses with nicer finishes than we used to. Uh, but most of it is an increase in the price of land. Uh, so in other words, if, um, uh, if you had a property on a 400 square metre block, uh, and instead you had to buy a 500 square metre block, most of it is kind of paying for that land. Um, now, some of that is because people value having a 500 metre block more than a 400 metre block. And some of it is because when you own land, you have the right to put a house on it, mm. uh, and or at least a home of some kind. And that land price is the thing that's really gone through the roof. Um, now, Mark Twain very famously remarked, invest in land, they ain't making it no more. Um, <laughs> but uh, of course, we, we can effectively create more dwelling spaces. We can take existing houses and turn them into two townhouses or four units or depending on the size of the block, depending on the surrounding things, 20 apartments. Mm. So we can certainly create more dwellings on a given piece of land but we clearly have not been doing that as much as people are prepared to pay for. And so the price of land has gone up very quickly. Mm. So when we think of land today, we're not, in Mark Twain's era, you know, you didn't make more land because we didn't build multi-storey dwellings. Mm. We, what we mean by land today though is usable space. So you can build more floor space and more people can live in it without adding to, increasing the footprint of the city just by simply building up. So, if we continue down the path we are, what is that looking like? What is it looking like for houses right now? What are they experiencing in terms of the stress levels of, of housing affordability right now? So those things have changed in different ways. One of the problems of this whole debate is that when people say housing affordability, they mean lots of different things. And one of the things that the report does is try and kind of tease all of those apart. So sometimes when people are talking about housing affordability, they're talking about the fact that they're spending more on housing as a percentage of their income. Uh, so whether that's paying the rent, whether that's paying off the mortgage, are you spending more of your income? And the answer is a bit less, uh, sorry, a bit more. Yes, you are. Although when you then break that apart, it turns out that people in the highest um, quintile of incomes are not paying a larger percentage of their income than they were, say, 15 years ago. But people in the bottom quintile of incomes, so with people on low incomes, they are spending more on their housing. So that's one way we can think about this. Another way we can think about this is um, in pure house prices. And as we said, yeah, prices are a lot higher than they used to be. But of course, for most households, they don't really care about the price. What they care about is how much do I have to pay on the mortgage? Uh, now, sometimes they'll think about that as what's the pure interest payment. Uh, and if we look at, well, how much, are, how much interest are households paying across the Australian community? The answer is, look, more than they were paying back in 1990, but actually less than between about 2003 and about 2012. Mm. So the amount that we're paying on mortgages, or at least as interest, is not particularly high relative to most of the last 15 years. 
Similarly, if we look at a brand new mortgage, so if we look at someone who takes out a mortgage tomorrow on the typical sort of house that a, a, a median house, and they're on a median income, what does that look like um, at current interest rates? And the answer is, look, again, they're not going to be paying particularly high mortgage repayments relative to most of the last 15 or 20 years. But, and there's a very, very big but, they are living with a lot more risk. Because if interest rates go up by two percentage points, then life will get very exciting for many of those um, households. So if we look at mortgage stress today, we look at you know what percentage of households are paying more than 30% of their um, incomes on the mortgage, um, which is a conventional, albeit somewhat arbitrary, definition of, of mortgage stress. Actually, fewer households are stressed in 2016 in the census than in 2011. So mortgage stress has actually gone down because interest rates have gone down. But, and this is the big but, as I said, if interest rates were to go up, and of course that's not just the interest rates that the Reserve Bank sets, it's the interest rates that people wind up paying. So they might go up because the Reserve Bank puts them up. They might go up because something happens in the rest of the world of finance that means that it costs Australian banks a lot more to borrow, and so they put interest rates up. Um, but if we were in a world in which interest rates went up, we would see a lot of households under stress about as high as it's ever been in history. Yeah. And of course, that would have economic consequences. Um, uh, we expect that it would lead to um, house prices being lower, but that's not going to help anyone who's already bought their house. Mm. Um, and it would also mean that households would probably save a lot more, so they would spend less. Um, and uh, that would obviously have an impact on the economy. You know, a large part of the economy is essentially household spending. Households suddenly reduce their spending because they've got to spend more money paying off the mortgage. Um, then we would probably see a very rapid decline in, in economic activity. And what about the, those looking to buy a house? Obviously, I would like to one day own a home. Am I really far away from it, Brendan? Um, you know, I mean, given the price of rent and the ability to save a deposit, how much further away am I from that? Well, look, it all depends on how you've saved, Megan. So terribly, that, Brendan, <laughs> terribly. Okay, well, then you might be a while away. Um, look, so there are three main constraints on being able to purchase a home. There is being able to afford the repayments. Now, as John said, that's actually pretty easy at the moment. Mm. You know, interest rates are relatively low, and therefore mortgage repayments are, are not unusual compared to history, despite house prices being very high, and therefore the amount you need to borrow being very high. The second constraint is being able to save the deposit. Now that has gotten a lot harder because if we've gone from a world where average house prices were about four times average incomes to a world where average house prices are six or seven times average incomes or potentially higher in say Melbourne or Sydney, then it's going to take you a lot longer to save a deposit. And so we estimate that the average time required to save a 20% deposit, assuming that you save about 15% of your income, and this is, mind you, obviously denoting that you're also putting away money in superannuation because of the enforced super guarantee at the same time, then that, the, the, amount that you ha the amount of years that you need to save that has gone from about six to over 10. Now, in Sydney, particularly anywhere close into the city, it's probably a lot higher and, and in Melbourne as well. So you know, being a resident of the inner northern suburbs of Melbourne, if you want to buy there, it's probably going to be pretty hard. All right. And the third one, as John said, is the, is the risk. So, you know, there's a, you've got to take on, you're taking on an asset that's a multiple of your annual income. And so you're both sensitive to the risk that interest rates might rise and also sensitive to the fact that prices might change. Now, there are lots of good reasons to think that housing is expensive. 
um, and that that reflects sort of the fundamentals of demand and supply. But, you know, one of the hard things is that you're making younger people take on this really hard choice. It's like, well, if you are worried that prices might come down, and that's a material prospect, and particularly if we, um, if we fix some of the supply side issues, then that could well be a good thing for that to happen gradually. Um, you are taking on a choice between, well, you, you've got to either take... Um, You've got to either purchase a property now um, at a large multiple of your income and hope everything ends up being okay, or you wait and house prices might rise further and you're priced even further out of the market. Hmm. And if you think about that risk, I mean, it's it's a higher risk than in the past for two reasons. An absolute increase in interest rates, though, that two percentage points um, increase from today's rates, I'd call it you know around 4% up to 6%, um, uh, that's a much bigger impact on household finances than when you were, say, going from 10% to 12%. Uh, and there's at least a little bit of evidence that households tend to think about this as a percentage point increase. Um, uh, and then the other thing is that you're living with that risk for a lot longer. Because the way that households tend to think about this is they buy their house, their repayments are call it, you know, 3000 bucks a month. Um, uh, but that'll be set for the life of the loan, 25 or 30 years or whatever it might be. Now, um, and because you've effectively locked in the price at which you originally bought the house. So assuming interest rates stayed stable, if you're in a world in which wage rates were going up pretty fast. You started off with a bill that was 3,000 bucks a month and that sounded pretty tough if you're on a you know, middling income. Um, uh, but five or 10 years down the track, of course, your income had gone up a lot. You're still paying 3,000 bucks a month and didn't look so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas because wage rates are now increasing, nominal wage rates, this is, are increasing very slowly. So nominal wage rates are now increasing by only about 2% a year. Mm. Um, that risk that you take on early is staying for a lot longer. And I suspect the other reason that that households um, really care about this risk and the reason that they still try and save 20% deposits is um, from the point of view of a, house bu- of a household buying a new house, um, uh, in a sense, they don't care what happens to the price. So in a sense, um, they've paid whatever they paid for the house. They've signed up to 25 years worth of mortgage payments at 3,000 bucks a month or whatever it might be. And you know what happens to house prices over the next 25 years doesn't affect them that much until they come to, to upgrade the house. And of course, they've got choices invariably not to do that. But the catch comes when house prices fall and they wind up with negative equity. So in other words, the um, value of the house is less than the amount that they paid for it. Mm-hmm. That's when banks tend to get very, very, very nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is the risk that households are taking on. And not just the risk that it's not just negative equity is not just what's the whether the price is worth less than what they pay, but whether the price is worth less than what they borrowed. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if they've if the price is less than what they've borrowed, that's when they can get in real trouble. That's when the bank starts saying, well, you need to kind of tip in a lot more money. The household says, well, I haven't got any money, um, and it all gets very ugly very quickly. So. Not surprisingly, households say, look, I don't really mind if my price goes up, if the price of my house goes up or down. I'm up for 3,000 bucks a month for the next 25 years. There it is. Um, what they do care about is a situation in which they might have borrowed more than the house is priced at, and then they might get pushed out of the house. And then, you know, obviously that is a very big change to their lives uh, and not one that that's a risk that most households are very unwilling to take. So that's our situation right now. What if what if it continues the way it has been? What are the consequences if there is no change? Well, the, the, there's another effect that we haven't talked about. So we've talked about how much of your income are we spending on housing? And the answer is, well, 
not a great news story if you're at the bottom. We've asked about, well, what's your vulnerability if you're taking on a mortgage? And the answer is, look, you're not actually paying out all that much relative to your income, um, given history, but you're taking on a lot more risk. Um, we've said it's much harder to save for a deposit. The one thing we haven't talked about is, well, so what's happening to home ownership rates overall? Uh, and at, at the top level, if we look at overall home ownership rates in Australia over a 30-year period, they haven't changed very much. Um, but of course, what that conceals um, is that the population has been ageing and older people are much more likely to own their house, their own house than younger people. So um, younger households aged 25 to 34 have gone from, uh, back in 1981, about 62% own their own house or own home, and now we're down to about 45%. So 62 down to 45, it's quite a big fall. Now that might just be because the 25 to 34 year olds amongst us Megan, um, are um, you know young and feckless. Um, well, that's but, what the baby boomers keep trying to tell us. It's what I hear daily from my parents. Uh, but 35 to 44-year-olds' home ownership rates are also falling. So that's the kind of the age piece, and it's being concealed, as I said, when we look at the overall rates, because, of course, there's more, there's a greater proportion of the, of the population of 70-year-olds than, than used to be. So that's looking at the age split. But then there's another, in many ways, much more concerning split um, that... That has changed. So if we go back 35 years, um, I was still in school, but only just in 1981. Um, and uh, home ownership rates amongst 25 to 34-year-olds were about 60%. Mm -hmm. And that was true no matter what your income was. Mm. If we roll the clock forward to 2016, uh, then we see a very different story. Home ownership rates have fallen a bit for people at the top who are in the top income group amongst those 25 to 34 year olds. They've fallen down to about 55%. That's not very beautiful, but you know it's not the end of the world. Mm. But home ownership rates for those in the bottom income quintile, so those with the lowest incomes, have fallen from about 60 odd percent to about 22%. Wow. So there's this now this really sharp divide in Australian home ownership, which is basically if you're high income, chances are you will own your own home. But if you're low income, chances are you won't. And that's a very big change from 35 years ago where home ownership was about the same no matter what your income was. Mm. Uh, we've so far looked at 25 to 34 year olds. Of course, the report goes through, um, as you'd expect from Grattan, does all of the different age groups. But well, we see the same effect for 35 to 44 year olds, not quite as large, because of course there's a pipeline to this. People who don't own homes when they're 25 are the precise people who are less likely to own their own homes when they're 35. Um, people who do own their own homes when they're 30, almost always do own their own home when they're, when they're, when they're 50. Mm. So um, that's another big effect that we're seeing here, that this, this home ownership thing is disproportionately affecting the young and very disproportionately affecting um, lower income households. And then the other thing that we have to worry about in terms of, of what's happening to households is, we've talked about this a bit when we're talking about overall incomes, is what's happened to rent? Mm. Uh, and the short answer is that rents more or less tracked wages at the at the highest level. So if we look at rents overall, they more or less tracked wages. Now that's um, uh, what we call real rent. So that's to to rent a place today of exactly the same quality that you would have rented 30 years ago. So of course, bad news. You're now looking living in something that's kind of probably compared to all your peers, looking pretty tawdry. Um, and you're actually paying more than someone would have paid for it 30 years ago in real terms. 
um, but at least it's no greater percentage of your income. Uh, so that's overall. But again, if we do this split between different income groups, we see a very different story. So um, the, per uh, the percentage of low-income households that are paying a large part of their income away in rent has risen quite materially, particularly if they live in the city. Uh, whereas for households that are in the middle of the income distribution, much less of an impact. Um, we're not seeing anything like the same kind of rental stress for them. So uh, again, we have this differential effect of housing affordability with it hitting those essentially in the bottom 40% much harder than it's hitting everybody else. So to put just some stats around that, around 35% of low-income Australians, so that's those in the bottom 40% of the income distribution in cities, used to spend more than 30% of their income on rent. So that was sort of the common definition, imperfect definition of rental stress. That number is now a lot closer to 50%. Wow. In non-capital cities, it's barely changed. So as a 25 to 34-year-old who doesn't own her own home, what am I missing out on? Well, um, of course, there's some benefits in not owning your own home. It's much sure. easier to move around to a fantastic job, wherever that might be, hopefully not too soon. Um, uh, it's... Um, uh, you, if you decide that you know you want to move cities, that's of course a lot easier. All of those kind of things, you're not going to be up for a fortune in stamp duty. Um, but on the other hand, there's a couple of, of um, social benefits um, to owning your own home. It tends to give you a much greater sense of permanence, um, uh, particularly given the way that our rental rules work in practice. Um, renting's a pretty bad deal in Australia compared to home ownership. It doesn't need to be that way, uh, but it is in practice. So. Um, uh, more than half of the people who rent have moved in the last two years. Uh, sometimes by choice, but often because the landlord basically said, look, I want to sell the house or I want to move back into it or whatever it might be, and they push the tenants out. Um, uh, you often need the landlord's permission to um, put a picture on the wall. They can just say no. Uh, you usually require the landlord's permission to have a pet. They very often say no. Um, uh, so people who own their own home have a lot more flexibility from those points of view. And, and of course, owning your own home also winds up in practice being a kind of forced savings device. Um, it means that you're kind of forced to put away a percentage of your, of your earnings every week or at least every month. And you know people use that uh, in practice to ensure that they wind up building up savings. Uh, and then, of course, given what has in fact happened to home prices, house prices and, and apartment prices over the last 30 years, anyone who did own their own home, by and large, did pretty well over that, out of that over the long run mm. um, because we've seen this big jump in house prices and that's why we've seen a big jump in average wealth. So if we look at the typical um, uh, 45, uh, 45 to 54-year-old um, household today, um, their wealth has gone up by about $600,000 in the last 10 years. And it's not because they saved $60,000 a year. It's because they owned a bunch of assets that went up in price. Mm. Now, of course, the catch for someone who has not bought their own house of today, home as of today and who's just about to is there is no guarantee that housing prices will go up the same way over the next 15 or 20 years. Uh, and, and indeed, given that quite a lot of that increase in price was the consequence of falling interest rates. And given that globally interest rates are currently at their lowest in at least uh, 5,000 years, um, you would want to be very brave uh, to say that there was going to be another big drop in interest rates that was going to you know, significantly increase uh, the value of your home. So uh, 
housing may be a much less effective wealth creation device than it's been over the last 20 years. It's funny you say that, John, because I looked at the Melbourne housing market four years ago and I thought exactly that. And that therefore I didn't need to buy a house and I would be perfectly fine. And I am now living three to four kilometres further out from the city to, for the same home as what I would have uh, at that time. I think one other thing that's worth pointing out here is that I, I agree with John, you're very unlikely to see the same uh, house price appreciation in the next 30 years as what we saw in the past. But nor would we necessarily want to see it. So, you know, house prices are a bit of a, rising house prices are a bit of a mixed blessing because housing has this really unique dual role. It's both something that we uh, own and something that we live in. And so if house prices rise, it tends to imply that, you know, future rents are going to be higher if housing is fairly valued. And the Reserve Bank governor has certainly put this on the record. Um, and therefore, just because house prices rise probably means that the next generation are going to have even higher housing costs. So if even if, Megan, you get into the housing market, good luck. Fingers crossed. We get there. Who knows? We might <laughs> even be neighbours. Um, there's some apartments, apartments going up in our street. Ooh. We're not objecting to them. <laughs> <laughs> to all our listeners, you should do the same. Um, yes, in your backyard. <laughs> yes, in your, yes, the Yimbies, um, straight out of San Francisco. Um, even even if um, if house prices do rise over the next 30 years for us, it just means that think of the next generation that comes. They're going to face even higher house prices compared to incomes. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to expand on that, I mean, it's worth remembering that the way that house prices, rising house prices roughly play out is as follows. For people who've invested in housing, that's terrific. They get to sell their investment for more than they paid for it, and life is good. For people who've already bought their own home, kind of cuts both ways. At the point that they eventually get around to selling it and downsizing, that might be good for them. But if they're younger households and they're likely to be upsizing at some stage, that, the, that upsizing will effectively cost them more than it would otherwise. And of course, for people who have not got into the housing market yet, it's a bad thing. They're going to wind up paying a lot more. Uh, and of course, it may also imply that rents go up uh, and they'll be paying higher rents. So. Um, John Howard said very famously that he'd never had someone stop him in the street and complain that their house price had gone up. And, and that's almost certainly right. Um, but uh, he probably certainly should have been stopped in the street by people who say that the price of the house they would like to buy had gone up. Uh, and, and so it's one of the reasons that this whole housing affordability game is very much an intergenerational game, which of course plays into the work that we published previously, like Wealth for Generations, that points out that you're getting this widening gap between generations and, and house prices are a material part of that. They've been terrific for older generations, much less good for younger generations. Well, guys, it's all sounding pretty dire for me, but I'd like to remain hopeful. So tell me what can be done to fix this problem? What should governments be doing? Well, you know, there's obviously a range of different options um, that governments could take, and we've, we've surveyed a lot of them. And one thing I obviously observe um, is that, you know, in the past, governments have tended not to choose the ones that are really hard. They've tended to choose those that are easy. But, you know, as John said at the start, there's both a demand side to this and there's a supply side. And so, you know, they're the tools that you've got at your disposal. Yeah. So, so another way of thinking about this is, is um, uh, how do we think about ranking all of those potential things we could do? Um, and in the report, we've applied two criteria. We firstly said, well, how much of a difference is it really going to make to housing affordability? You know, many of the things that governments talk about, including when they say they have a comprehensive plan to deal with housing affordability, 
they're really not going to make much difference at all. Indeed, some of them may, in fact, push it backwards. Right. Uh, uh, so that's one thing you care about. And then, of course, you also care about well, what are all of the other impacts of the policy? Um, uh, is it good or bad for the economy? Is it good or bad for the budget? Is it good, good or bad for social inequality? Good or bad for defence, although there's not too many things where that's an issue. Um, uh, so you've actually got to think about policy reforms, all things considered, and that means both, well, will it improve affordability and will it either help or hinder all of the other things that we care about? So let's split this into two, um, which is something that we've done mostly when we talk about housing affordability. You've got the demand and you've got the supply. So on the demand side, the report mentions a number of reforms that could help manage the demand for housing, correct? Well, so governments could implement a number of reforms to, to help reduce um, demand for housing and not just reduce demand for housing for the sake of it, but reduce change policies that are artificially inflating the demand for housing by making it more attractive to invest or hold housing as an asset uh, rather than other, other things, so whether it be shares or productive businesses or bank accounts. And so what the Commonwealth can do is it could reform by or essentially reduce the capital gains tax discount and abolish negative gearing, which is something that Grattan has recommended before in our 2016 report, Hot Property. Um, if you did that, um, so reduce the capital gains tax discount from 50% to 25% and effectively abolish negative gearing so you couldn't offset uh, rental losses against uh, your wage and salary income, then um, you know that would make housing marginally more affordable because uh, holding those at, um, investing in housing would be less attractive for property investors. Um, but we don't think the impact would be that large. So you're probably talking about a price fall of around about two percent, and well, prices two percent lower than what they would be otherwise, and maybe slightly higher price falls um, amongst um, areas that have lots of negative geared properties or areas that tend to have lots more, they have cheaper properties. So one of the things that we've observed in doing this report is that actually house prices amongst the cheapest prices have grown faster, um, because essentially because negatively geared investors tend to put their money there because then they get away without paying land taxes because tax, land taxes have tax-free thresholds in each state. Um, but the main benefit would be the budgetary benefit. So. Um, if you did reform negative gearing in the capital gains tax discount, as we suggest, you could potentially save $5 billion a year, which is a material sum compared to a budget deficit, which, you know, is sitting just around $30 billion a year based on, I think, the last um, but final budget outcome. So that's one thing that you could do. The Commonwealth could also change the rules around the age pension, because at the moment, most of the value of the family home is not included um, in the age pension assets test. Mm, so whether you... Yeah, if you own a home, if you own a home in Turak that's worth four million dollars, then only the first two hundred thousand dollars is included, and the last three point eight million is not. That same home, if it's well, it's obviously not the same home, but if you own a home in Bendigo that's worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, the first two hundred thousand dollars is included, and the the last fifty thousand is not, which is really the wrong way around. Um, so if you flip it around and say, okay, well we'll exempt the first say five hundred thousand dollars of the home and then anything beyond that goes in the age pension assets test, mm. then that's a much fairer way of sort of making sure the pension is targeted to those most in need. And as we've said Absolutely. before, like half of all pension payments are going to those with net wealth of more than $500,000, largely because of this exemption. And close to 20% are going to those with more than a million dollars in net wealth, mm. again, because the family home is excluded. Now, this will make housing marginally more affordable because you know, you're making it less attractive to hold so much wealth in housing. Um, 
the budgetary savings would be about one to two billion dollars a year but we don't think it would lead to many more people downsizing because it's not as we've talked about in this podcast before it's not the financial incentives that determine whether someone downsizes or not they want to age in place they want to age in their own homes what all the surveys say um they want to age in their own community if they they get basically give up on the home because it either gets too big they can't manage it or it's got a garden that's really difficult and when they look around to then try to downsize to something the problem is there's nothing to downsize to because older australians have tended either in established suburbs are precisely the kind of areas where we haven't been able to subdivide and build the kind of housing that we'd want to fit a growing population townhouses the sorts of things that they would want to move into simply isn't there mm. now the states can also contribute to this essentially by um, removing the exemption of unoccupied housing from state land taxes mm-hmm. grattan's written a report before property taxes that recommended that you essentially start taxing unoccupied housing as the act has started to do raising about seven billion dollars a year it'll make housing perhaps three percent lower than otherwise and if you did these things, then, you know, that would make a difference. But the benefits are mainly to the budget or to the economy. They don't have that bigger impact on house prices. In fact, you know, we would estimate that if you did all of them, you would probably reduce house prices by no more than 10%. Wow. Okay. Because it's a $7 trillion housing market, these budgetary, the budgetary savings from these things is something in the range of, say, 10 15 billion dollars a year it's just not big enough Mm. and so demand side drivers alone on the tax side is not going to really help Mm. that much they're absolutely worth doing and the reason why you should do them is unlike the supply stuff that we'll talk about in a second the demand side of um, policies can take effect straight away so whereas supply you only add marginally to new supply each year um, and therefore, you need a sustained increase in supply for a long time to get cheaper prices. On the demand side, you make the tax change, it gets priced into, um, into the market straight away. If you want that to be the, ha- the case, or you can gradually introduce it, but you can be sure that the prices will be lower as a result of the policy change. Mm. So what about supply then? Um, what needs to change, John, on the supply side? So the big game here is around planning regulation. Uh, we think that the evidence is pretty clear that planning has essentially dragged on housing supply. Uh, and, and roughly speaking, new housing supply comes in three broad categories. Um, there's taking um, our existing inner and middle rings and building significant townhouses or, or apartments on them. Uh, that might be 30-storey um, apartments right in the CBD, which is mostly what we've built in Melbourne. It might be five to nine storey apartments, which is what we have largely built in Sydney. And one of the things that is new about this report is the way that it shows this this very recent trend, really only the last two or three years, uh, with Sydney building a lot more five to nine storey developments, essentially along all of the major transport corridors. Um, Very different pattern to its history, very different pattern to anything that's happening in Melbourne. Um, Certainly the scale of it is quite different. Um, And and to give you an idea of the scale, Sydney's gone from building about 5,000 apartments uh, of various kinds a year to about 22,000 a year. Now in a scheme of of a market that only needs about an extra 50,000 dwellings a year in Sydney, that's a very material change. so that's one kind of thing, is those kind of apartments, whether you put them as CBD towers, or which inherently is a relatively limited space. So, you know, although you can go to 40 storeys, there's only so much land you can do that on. Mm. Or whether you talk about this sort of more intensive development along transport corridors, which maybe often you can't go more than um, 
even four, four stories. But on the other hand, there's an awful lot of land that falls into the category. Then the second sort of thing that we look at is is around suburban infill. So that's taking the existing 700 um, uh, square metre block and saying, well, we're going to put four townhouses on it. Um, so typically that's done by mum and dad investors, not by, um, oh, sorry, mum and dad builders rather than, um, well, for some reason they always get called mum and pop. They do, don't they? I don't know why why there's mum and dad investors and mom and pop builders. Um, uh, uh, Anyway, they tend to do those kind of much smaller uh, developments. But but because the land area involved is so large, I mean, this could easily happen on very large percentages of our total um, uh, uh, land area in Sydney and Melbourne. The number of dwellings you could get this way is is very large. So one estimate um, that's been done for Melbourne is that you could easily fit another one to two million um, dwellings into the existing um, suburbs of Melbourne simply by, um, by and by no means on all of the existing blocks of Melbourne, turning you know single storey um, uh, houses into four sometimes six apartment blocks no more sorry six um, townhouses no more than two stories high. Um, so that's the second thing what we call um, a suburban infill. Uh, and then the third thing, of course, is greenfield um, uh, development right on the edges of our cities. Which we've spoken about before on this podcast. Yeah, and there's been a lot more of that in Melbourne than in Sydney. And indeed, Sydney has constrained the release of land right on the edge. And so not surprisingly, the price has gone through the roof. Um, Melbourne has released rather more land. Uh, and consequently, the price has stayed broadly stable. Um, now, there are catches with that. Uh, inherently, in Melbourne today, if you're building on greenfield land, you're building at least 25 kilometres from the city. Uh, in Sydney, by and large, um, you'll be 40, 45 kilometres. It's Campbelltown. Sydney's got much worse geography than Melbourne. It's got essentially um, ocean on the east. It's got the Blue Mountains to the west. It's got the Karingai National Park to the north. So really the only place that Sydney can go is southwest. Mm. Um, and and that means it's a long way out. Now, the catch with even living on Melbourne's fringe, let alone Sydney's fringe, is that commuting from that fringe right into the centre is really hard. Mm. Uh, and no doubt some people do it, but actually not that many. Uh, and uh, that means that the people living there have pretty poor access to jobs. And we can see from the, the work that we've previously published um, uh, on mapping Australia's cities is that um, uh, those outer suburbs tend to have r- people with relatively lower incomes. Uh, the work we've just published uh, a couple of months ago on on Australia's regional economy shows that they've had much less income growth over the last person over the last um, decade or so. Um, they tend to have much lower rates of higher education. Uh, they've got much worse access to jobs. There's a limited number of jobs they can get to within a reasonable commute time. And indeed, we can see that most of the people in those suburbs commute about two suburbs in or two suburbs around. Um, but they don't go um, that much further because it's just takes too long. Um, So poor access to jobs and as a result of all of those things, um, typically um, lower levels of female workforce participation, um, uh, more young people who are not in employment education and training, whole series of social indicators that are kind of in the wrong direction. Mm. So those are our choices. We can either build apartment blocks of, you know, anywhere between three and 50 stories. Uh, We can do um, infill of townhouses or we can build on the edge. Um, And depending on which city you're in, we've kind of made those more or less difficult, by and large more difficult, uh, because everybody agrees that there should be more dwellings uh, so that their children can buy a house and so that they can downsize, but they think that it should happen in, in the suburb next to theirs. <laughs> of course. <laughs>
And so that sort of leads you into like what you would do about it. And really there's probably two actions that state governments need to take and two that local governments need to take. So as John said, there's a, a NIMBY problem in the sense that local councils uh, represent their existing community and therefore aren't great at um, taking account of the, um, of the residents that would otherwise live in their area if more housing was built. So when they go and oppose these things, um, and make it quite hard because a lot of these rules are at the local government level. Um, they the, the essential argument is, oh, well, it should occur somewhere else in the council next door. Mm. Um, so one of the things the state governments have to do is, one, they have to talk about the problem. So there are trade-offs. If you're going to have a growing population and you want to house it in the best possible way that lets people realise their housing preferences, then you need to, first of all, set targets for local councils for the amount of new supply that each council is, is going to develop and also talk publicly about those trade-offs. And if, if local councils then don't follow up on those targets, then state governments have to be willing to make the threat of taking over more of the development approvals from those local councils. Because in the past strategic plans, they've often been written at the, at the, the state level um, and then they simply haven't been followed through. So in Melbourne and Sydney, governments have repeatedly missed their targets set out in strategic plans for the number of new homes they're building. Mm. Then for the local councils, really where the rubber hits the road is you've got to do a couple of things. You've either got to allow more of that urban infill, the small scale stuff that John talked about as, as a code assessed development. So essentially instead of requiring a full development approval, if you meet basic requirements for setbacks, um, for not looking into your neighbor's property, um, you know, for the, ba the, the materials that you use and all the rest of that, then you should be free to do that straight up and you ha developers will have much more certainty. And secondly, um, along major transport routes, which is where we want more of the housing to go, you really should be looking to get um, four to six to eight storey developments as of right along those key transport routes. Um, and so if that's expected up front, the, 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 the local councils and the state government have a conversation with the community about the trade-offs and where the housing's gonna go, then you can build the housing uh, people will understand where you're going. That's essentially what's happened in Brisbane with the Brisbane City Council area, where over the last decade, because the council is so large, it's more than a million people, they've internalised some of those conversations and those costs of where the development's going to go, had a conversation with the community, and they've built more housing on, in terms of larger apartments on the sort of CBD fringe. And and what's happened is that is that rents have started to fall and prices have started to fall um, uh, in Brisbane, everyone says, well, that's a catastrophe. And the answer is, well, no, 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 mm -hmm. that's kind of the idea. I mean, if you want housing to be more affordable, then it's going to have to be cheaper. It does slightly follow. Uh, and um, it doesn't mean that we have overbuilt in mm. Brisbane. Uh, what it does mean is that we are actually starting to provide housing to people who weren't prepared to pay such a high price for it. Um, they're still prepared to pay something for it. Uh, just not quite so much as yesterday. So if you are planning on making a capital gain, that's very unfortunate. But from a social policy perspective, if the idea here is to ensure that Australians can get housing, it's actually been a success story. And we are seeing um, is essentially more people in, in Brisbane can afford to buy their own home. More of people in Brisbane can afford to rent a home. So, so far we've talked about supply, uh, so about demand and supply and the kind of things that governments could do. There's, there's one thing we need to add in here, which is, well, what about migration? We've said that a large part of this is demand. And the, although Australian governments have not um, 
set population targets um, in, uh, for, a, for a long time. The reality is they have plenty of choices on migration policy. Mm. Uh, and you could certainly change your migration policy so that you wound up with fewer people moving to Australia, and that would mean that there was less demand for housing, uh, and that would mean that prices would fall. Housing would be more affordable. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you want to do that or that it would be a good idea. Mm. Um, uh, migration has lots of benefits. Um, our migration program, particularly over the last 10 years, when, as we've already noted, there was a big jump up in the number of migrants um, per year, uh, and, and in particular what we call net overseas migration. In other words, at, um, how many more migrants, how many more people do we have in Australia at the end of the year than we had at the beginning of the year? Um, so that obviously counts both the people who came and subtracts off the people who left. Um, uh, Australian governments have got choices, but um, these um, people who have come have been disproportionately young, disproportionately skilled, disproportionately employed, disproportionately um, uh, higher levels of education. And so by and large, they have tended to um, add to Australian economic output per capita. They have tended to... Um, uh, contribute substantially to the Commonwealth budget because many migrants come here um, obviously with the obligation to pay tax but without the rights certainly for a number of years to get either welfare or Medicare uh, and then of course they also co um, contribute to you know the social um, fabric of Australia and its diversity and many people have a put a substantial value on that um, they also contribute to a sense of innovation um, uh, you know, inherently migrants are more likely to have get up and go because by definition they have already got up and left. Um, <laughs> it's hard to kind of prove but in the, in the statistics, but, you know, and people have ingeniously done um, uh, e uh, economic studies trying to prove that they, there's, a, there's a productivity benefit to migrants. It's, it's pretty hard to kind of, it's inherently hard to prove that, but, but um, you can certainly have a go at it. Uh, so migrants bring lots and lots of benefits. Uh, the catch is that the people who pay for it without good planning policy are essentially the young and less well-off in Australia. Now, is that a good trade-off? That's not obvious. Uh, and so if we're not going to get planning policy right, and we certainly have not got planning policy right for 15 years, so we're going to need, say, a sudden step change. Um, if we're not going to get planning policy right, at least working out what our population policy ought to be, working out what the trade-offs are between all these benefits of migration and the costs that it imposes, um, particularly on, on younger um, and less well-off households, that's a conversation that we need to have mm. uh, and at least make those trade-offs with our eyes open. Now, I don't want to suggest that making those trade-offs is going to be easy. Uh, if we reduce the number of people who come here as skilled migrants, then that hurts Australian businesses. If we reduce the number of people who come here as, um, uh, uh, as students, then that obviously hurts Australian education providers. Uh, and, of course, both skilled and um, student um, migrants tend to help Australia's demography over time. Um, obviously, migrants do age, but they have had the impact of smoothing out the bump in Australia's population so that um, ageing is, uh, and the costs that an ageing population imposes are hitting Australia much more slowly and in a much more even way than in countries with very low rates of migration such as Japan. Also, there, as um, the Treasurer Scott Morrison mentioned the other day, there are, there, are, there are budgetary costs of cutting the migration intake in both the short term and potentially in the long term because uh, work done by the Productivity Commission certainly suggested that uh, since you're taking migrants that are young, 
and they are skilled, they're much likely to pay taxes for quite a long, for a long period of time relative to the number of years they will eventually draw on Australia's social safety net. And, you know, building on what John was saying before, um, Sydney has done better on supply. Um, it's building a lot more apartments than it ever used to. A lot of those are in the middle ring and they're the four to nine storey apartment buildings that, you know, we think you need a lot more of and also um, the smaller scale townhouses. Um, and it's worth thinking about why has that happened? What's changed? And so one of the big things that's, that's happened in Sydney is that um, greenfield land got a lot more expensive. And therefore, so land on the urban fringe got a lot more expensive. You know, if you're making a choice between buying an apartment or buying a house on the urban fringe, and as a first time buyer, they're kind of the choices you've got in Sydney if you've got something approaching the median income or even above it, actually. Um, then if housing on the urban fringe has become a lot more expensive because one, it's, it's a lot further out, but two, there's not much land being released then apartments start to look a lot more attractive. So just the pure economics of it have been a big driver of what's happened in Sydney. But there's been some explicit planning rule changes that have also had a material impact. The first of these is the joint independent planning panels that have really taken a lot more of the control away from local councils and given it to these independent panels made up of experts that then assess development applications. And so um, they were assessing applications above $20 million. Now I think it's between five and 30 million under new rules that are coming in um, essentially this year. And what they have done is they've taken the control off the councils and led to a lot more development happening in those middle ring suburbs. And if you're talking about a, a $30 million or $20 million development, a four to nine storey apartment building in Sydney is gonna get you there. You know, land's not cheap, so therefore the, 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 the development doesn't have to be all that expensive before it triggers those, those figures. And so we think that that's one of the material reasons why supply has really picked up in Sydney compared to, say, in Melbourne, where there is lots of evidence that uh, local councils um, essentially make it quite difficult to, to develop in those areas, both in terms of the absolute rules that say what you can do and then also in terms of how councils implement their rules because we see a lot of developments that are going, um, being appealed to VCAT by developers and then being approved. So, and, the, and VCAT, when it goes and does that, this is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, um, which essentially gives, you know, the right of, of, of appeal for both developers, uh, residents, affected residents and the council, depending upon um, the decisions that are made. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of development approvals uh, applications are going to VCAT, being approved in areas where the v where VCAT is essentially just implementing the policies set out in those councils' planning rules in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that you've got councils that are perhaps not following their own rules. There's a lot of discretion in the Victorian system as well. There's lots of references to neighbourhood character, and my version of neighbourhood character could be very different to your version. Mm. So is that it then? If we all just follow Sydney's example, everything will be fine? Well, so it would be a start. So certainly something that that Melbourne should do or Victoria should do is um, start to take some more of that control or, you know, set targets for supply. And as we mentioned before, and if they, if, um, if the councils don't start to meet those targets, then yes, take some of the control away from councils and give it to these panels. Now, interestingly enough, one of the reasons this happened in Sydney was not necessarily about housing supply. It was concerns about the monetary links between property developers and local councils. Essentially, it was part of an anti-corruption drive. And um, so one of the effects it's had, though, is it has taken power away from councils, um, put it at arm's length with an independent panel's appointed with a combination of members of the council, of the council land use planners and other um, people appointed by the state governments, and that's allowed a lot more development to take place. But even if, um, 
even if even though Sydney is doing better lately, you know, Sydney has much higher house prices than Melbourne. Now, part of that is probably because, and I hate to say it as a Victorian, uh, those harbour views and that weather probably do actually make a difference to how much where people want to live and how much they're willing to pay. Culture just doesn't pay, Megan, unfortunately. Pro-Sydney? Is that what you're telling me, Brendan? No, I'm certainly not pro-Sydney. I'm simply observing that a lot of people seem to be. <laughs> it pains me. And so um, Sydney prices have been really expensive in part because they haven't been building a lot of housing for a long time, but they've now finally started to catch up. And so we do see a literal building boom across the inner and middle ring suburbs of Sydney. There's 350 cranes up in Sydney compared to only 150 in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. That's an enormous difference. And so there's a lot more housing being built. But the challenge is that even current rates of new housing supply, the rates of home building in Sydney are still not even meeting the targets set out in Sydney's plans for um, for strategic plans uh, for the amount of new housing that's going to be needed out to the 20, mid-2030s based on observed of planned population growth and where we know that actual population growth into Sydney Melbourne is running far stronger because whereas the overall um, net overseas migration figures, um, the number of people coming to Australia is lower than it was at the peak of the mining boom, a far greater proportion of them are coming to Melbourne and Sydney now than they ever did before. Mm. So basically, Sydney's on the track, but still a long way to go. Yeah, and what it essentially means is the current rates have to continue. It's the new normal and you can't shut the gate. Melbourne still needs to lift its game from here to hit its targets set out in its strategic plan, Plan Melbourne 2017, uh, for the amount of new homes needed. And even that is an underestimate compared to the pace of population growth we're currently seeing. Right. So we've talked a lot about what should happen. Um, and obviously housing affordability, it's a topic that is much talked about and not just by us. What are some of the policies that have been suggested that actually aren't helpful? Well, I'll start with one that's probably not going to help much, but it's probably not unhelpful either. Um, and that's, you know, um, making sure that we're appropriately regulating how what foreign investors um, can purchase um, and also uh, taxing them, you know, quite significantly because there's actually good merits for uh, raising revenue from foreign investors. So um, the existing foreign investment review rules arguably haven't been as well enforced as what they should have been. Uh, so there's, there's been lots of talk about um, foreign investors illegally purchasing homes. Um, foreign investors are only supposed to purchase new homes, um, whereas there's talk that they've been purchasing existing homes. And that, I think, first and foremost, undermines confidence in the regime. Um, it also probably has the effect of, you know, if, if a foreign investor comes and they're only allowed to new, purchase a new home, you know, then you've, there's a fair chance they're adding to both demand and supply of housing, mm. right? So there's, we certainly hear lots of stories of uh, foreign investors mean that you get higher apartment towers in the city because you can pre-sell a lot more of the development to foreign investors and therefore get the finance going and make a, a bigger go of it than you would otherwise. Mm. But when foreign investors are purchasing existing housing, it's much less unclear that they're actually adding both to the demand and the supply of housing, and therefore they're much more likely to be pushing house prices up. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge here, though, that even if you enforce the existing rules better and you know you you tax uh, foreigners you know fairly heavily, which is what we've started to do, um, even if you crack, tried to do these things and crack down on them, it's probably not going to make that big a difference because foreign investors just, they just don't own enough of the housing stock. Like on our estimates, we think that foreign investors maybe own 2% of housing. Um, a very small proportion of that is left vacant. Um, and therefore, you know, 
would be available um, if you did try to um, if you try to force all those homes onto the market and therefore it's probably worth doing but it won't make that big a difference a vacant property tax falls into a similar category in part because this is a tax that's been introduced in Victoria um, and also it's been introduced in Vancouver and elsewhere around the world and the Commonwealth government now has a particular fee or tax that's only applicable if someone doesn't let out their home um, that the problem there is about enforcing the rules so a vacant property tax is a good idea in principle, but it's unlikely to be all that effective because it's actually going to be quite hard to work out who these people are uh, to um, make sure that the existing exemptions around having a, a, a holiday house or having a pad in the city if you have to work and you're from the country. These are things that are probably, it's hard to discriminate between a legitimate use of those exemptions and a foreign investor or, or any investor, in fact, that isn't really looking to invest their property or to rent out their property, but they're not using it themselves. So that's one thing. One thing that would, um, another thing that would probably really um, be, be a very bad idea is increasing first home buyers, home buyers grants or stamp duty concessions. In any survey of what government should do to make housing more affordable, this is always at the top of the list. Mm. And you know, it's intuitively quite attractive. You give more money to people who are struggling to buy a house so I Megan, free money. Yep. please give me free money. Well, the trouble is it's not free money because oh. us poor home buy homeowners are having to pay for it. I'm okay no. with that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's not just those home bu- homeowners. It's also the renters that can't buy. Mm. Um, you know, and so what ends up happening is who wins when that happens? Well, it's those that if I give you an extra concession, whether a first home buyer's grant or in the case of the state, the New South Wales and Victorian state governments, an uh, extra concession on your stamp duty so you pay less stamp duty, it doesn't actually, what, what you do with that money is that you will increase the amount that you're willing to bid for the home. Not only that, you'll leverage it up. So, you know, if you're borrowing an 80% loan to valuation ratio and we give you $5,000 from the government, you might actually be bidding multiples of that into the market. Mm. And so who wins in that situation? Well, the banks borrow, lend you more money, so they probably do all right. Mm-hmm. The government's worse off because they've lost $5,000. And the person who you've bought the home from has probably got a much higher price for the property than what they otherwise would have. And that's certainly what we've seen in Victoria, um, where outer suburban areas and regional areas have seen much faster prices growth and they're areas where first home buyers dominate. So that's an example of something that's probably not gonna be worth doing. Mm. Um, shared equity schemes are another one that we don't think would be all that effective. So this is where, you know, I'm gonna use you again as the prototype, Megan. Uh, you know, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. so they're, they're, <laughs> like, you know, the, you should take advantage of these benefits if they exist. It's just yeah. a question about whether they should be there. Mm. Um, so a shared equity scheme says that, you know, if you're having trouble to build the deposit, um, instead of you having to build the deposit, you can actually co-purchase a property with the state government. So the state government will instead chip in a certain amount of the, the price of the home. Um, you will have to only put up maybe a 5% deposit rather than a 20% deposit. And um, in the state government owns part of the home, and if you sell it, then you, the state government gets their money back. Okay. Now, the challenge with these things is that they're probably not a bad idea if they're really tightly targeted, or not a terrible idea if they're really tightly targeted to actually helping low-income earners. Mm. Um, but they don't tend to be. They seem to be often targeted to around the median income earner in the state, um, which means that you're, help, you're putting government money on the line to help people that are higher up the income distribution. Now, there's nothing in principle wrong with that, but if we accept that the governments have relatively scarce resources, then one of the impacts of that is you may have less left over 
to help those lower down. Sure. So you probably shouldn't be spending a lot of money helping that group over others. And the same certainly applies with the first home buyers grants. Mm. And the last one, which actually is quite often quite seems to be quite attractive, is trying to push people or jobs to the regions in the name of housing affordability. Mm. So we spoke before about migration. One of the solutions could potentially be, look, you make people move to regional areas. Um, the problem with that is we've been trying to do it for 117 years and it's been relatively unsuccessful. There are not many places that you can go where you think, well, if only we gave them um, lots of infrastructure, we put, some, put lots of jobs there and maybe an international airport and go, oh, well, what's going to happen? And we've got the answer. It's Canberra. <laughs> There's very little there apart from... About <laughs> look, I used to live in Canberra. It's actually quite a nice place to live. The weather sucks, though. Um, <laughs> It's, there's very little private enterprise there outside of government apart from some defence contractors. Mm. So even when we've tried to push jobs to the region and set it up with enormous resources, enormous investment, um, it hasn't really worked. Now, you could try to do that by pushing more people to, say, Bendigo or Ballarat or Geelong mm. or equivalent areas in New South Wales. Um, that might be marginally more effective, but you've still got to spend a lot of money to get the transport infrastructure up and, you know, there's, there aren't great guarantees that we would actually spend the money on the right infrastructure going to the right places. So would the person be... And also, if you push people into those those areas, it kind of doesn't work that well if you've got two income earners who are both trying to commute into the city where their jobs are um, and their families are located around that area. What tends to happen, you know, is as um, we've documented in... Um, in uh, Grattan's book, City Limits, by Jane Francis Kelly and Paul Donegan, um, in the examples of Point Cook, what tends to happen is one of the income, earner, income earners ends up essentially dropping out of the labour force and looking after the kids and taking a job locally. So I'm not quite so sure that that one would work all that well either. One other popular idea is that we should encourage um, older Australians to downsize from their large freestanding homes into into um, into smaller homes and therefore freeing those those houses up for younger people with families. Mm. Um, but as I mentioned before, a lot of the reasons why people don't downsize aren't financial. Mm. So if you give, say, an exemption around, um, you know, allowing people to put more money into their superannuation, which is essentially what the Commonwealth government has done, people are now allowed to put an extra post-tax contribution of up to $300,000 from selling their home um, and that not have that trigger the $1.6 million cap on how much you can have in there tax-free, um, you know, that's, well, for one, that's targeting a very small group of very wealthy people. And so it's hard to understand why that policy is in place. But in general, if the main reasons people don't downsize really relate to non-financial incentives, then what you're going to be doing is giving a financial benefit to those that were going to downsize anyway. And you're actually unlikely to see many more people downsize than otherwise. So that's been a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> and just just to help my brain put it all together, um, would you mind just summing up the key recommendations from the report? So, look, you can really break it down into the supply and the demand side. So, you know, we think that boosting the supply of housing will have the biggest impact on affordability. Mm -hmm. So state governments need to fix planning rules to allow more housing to be built in inner and middle ring suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, they should also do things like flatten land taxes and replace stamp duties with general property taxes because that'll make make you um, better use of the housing stock. We haven't spoken about that through, during the podcast, but the recommendations and the uh, research underlying that are all in the report. Mm -hmm. And we should probably look at changing tenancy laws in such a way that it becomes easier 
for people for renters to have more secure tenure. So get rid of no no cause evictions, um, and try to shift some of the shift some of the laws in that direction. Because if you're a rent, if the renting population is changing. Um, we should also try to be using uh, transport uh, infrastructure more efficiently, either through congestion charging or through um, better use of transport infrastructure uh, projects. So picking projects better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the demand side, um, it's really Commonwealth and state governments can make housing more affordable immediately by changing the tax rules around the capital gains tax discount, um, negative gearing, including the home in the age pension assets test and including unoccupied housing in state land taxes. Those things won't solve the problem, but they'll help. And if state governments um, aren't prepared to reform their land use planning systems to allow more housing to be built, the Commonwealth government should consider tapping the brakes on migration. So the Commonwealth, at the, regardless of whether it makes that call, should develop an art- and articulate a population policy that weighs the costs and benefits of migration, sets out why we have migration set at current levels, how we're going to accommodate these people that come to Australia. And, you know, it's unambiguously good for migrants to come to Australia. That is why they come. Mm. Um, there, as we've mentioned, there's lots of benefits to migration for the existing Australian population if you do it well. Um, but if we're not doing it well, then we do have to ask the question about what we should be doing instead. Well, thank you so much for your time today, John and Brendan. Uh, That has been an incredibly comprehensive discussion on the housing affordability crisis in Australia. If you would like to download a copy of the full report to delve into stuff that even we didn't get to discuss on the podcast today, you can head to our website, grattan.edu.au. As always, you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and reports uh, by subscribing to our Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.